Last Sunday evening, we began a a summer series on biblical typology. We'll do some more explaining tonight what we mean by that, but let's seek the Lord's help as we seek to look at our second type tonight. Last week, we looked at Adam, who's a type of Christ as the head of a race. Tonight, we'll be looking at Noah's Ark as a picture of Christ as Savior. Let's seek the Lord's help now. Our Father, at the end of the Lord's Day, our our minds have grown feeble and weak, and so we ask that you would stir them, that you would give us by your Holy Spirit concentration and focus and remembrance and understanding. Lord, we know, too, that the evil one battles us every time that we open your word, and so we ask that you would defeat him, that uh, all distractions would be taken far from us, that we would be enabled to singly focus our minds and hearts, recognizing that you have great benefit for us in this word. Help us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Hope you have your Bible open to Genesis chapter 6. And I want to think about Noah's character. We're going to dig pretty deep into Genesis 6 and 7, and you'll need your Bible in front of you. Begin by thinking of Noah's character. We're told in Genesis 6, 9, In one single verse, all sorts of truths about his character. Just like his great-grandfather Enoch, who's listed for us just above in Genesis chapter 5, Noah was known for his piety. And the text goes to great lengths to spell this out and speaks of his holiness in Genesis 6-9 in three different ways. Look what we're told there. He was, first of all, a just man. Second, he was perfect in his generations. The Hebrew word translated perfect is the same word, tamim, that is used to describe an acceptable sacrifice, one that's without spot or blemish in Exodus and Leviticus. And then third, we're told of his character that he walked with God. It's the exact same phrase that's used of his great-grandfather Enoch. And so let's analyze for just a moment what sort of man we're dealing with here in Noah. We're told in verse 9 that in all his dealings, judicial, governmental, financial, that in all his dealings with his fellow man, Noah was just. No injustice, no lying, no thieving, no oppression. In his dealings with God, he was intimate, had communion with Jehovah. His piety was full-orbed, not one-dimensional. There are no glaring or scandalous sins that marked him. He sought first the kingdom of God. He wasn't about his own agenda. And this text is also in Genesis 6, clearly drawing the antithesis between Noah and his household and the entire rest of the culture. Noah was out of step with the surrounding world, and gladly so. He would never have won any popularity contest. He was thought of as strange and odd by all, but he was in step with God. So notice what we're told about God. Look, for example, in verse 11, 12, and 13 of chapter 6. We are told repeatedly that the Lord is not ignorant of what's happening on the earth, but he sees. In fact, we're told in verse 13 that he judges. Notice how often we are told that God sees exactly what is happening. So in verse 11, we are told that the, the earth was corrupt before God. Notice, before God. This is happening quorum Deo, before God's face. And then in verse 12, we're told that God looked upon the earth. And then in verse 13, the Lord says, The end has come before me. I will destroy them. 
And then, again, God speaks of his seeing with the intention of judging in verse 17, saying, I myself am bringing floodwaters to destroy. And for those of you who are particularly sensitive to the immorality and the perversity of our culture, and you think it's unchecked, the world is spiraling rapidly downward, and you think, I I don't think God sees this, the answer is yes, he does. We're told that repeatedly here in Noah's day. For example, in Adam's day, just three chapters earlier in Genesis 3, God saw the slightest deviation from his revealed will, and he judged. In Genesis 4, when Cain secretly murdered Abel, God saw and judged. And now here in Noah's day, in Genesis 6, God has already seen the wickedness of the culture, and he's assessed it. Look at his assessment in verses 5 through 8. We see, the Lord saw... And this is vital for you and I to recognize nothing escapes the view of an omnipresent God. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, Creeping things and birds of the air, I'm sorry I've made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So, notice how often again we are told that the Lord saw or sees. In verse 5, the Lord saw. And for those who would say, wait a second, Carl. Is it fair for God to destroy everybody on earth but eight people? What God is saying here is, in Genesis 6 is, yes, it's fair and just. In fact, if I didn't do something about this, it would mean that I'm not a holy God. If I didn't do something about this, it would say I'm not holy and I don't care about righteousness, and that is the opposite of what I've revealed in my word. By the way, this judgment that we will see tonight in Genesis 6 and 7 is, of course, a down payment. It's a foreshadowing. It's a signpost pointing towards the final and much greater judgment. The Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, the only difference is that judgment will not be by water but by fire. The world, Peter says, will be consumed and regenerated in that great judgment. This full-scale judgment demands and demonstrates that truth, righteousness, and holiness prevail regardless of majorities and minorities. So notice who will not be judged. We'll point this out several times. Eight people, the minority. Look who will be judged. The majority, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people on even in that young day of the earth. And this text condemns any deistic ideas. You know what deism is. It says that God set in motion natural laws and forces and has gone off to do other things. And he never will personally intervene in the affairs of the world. He's not involved. But look at our text. Look carefully at Genesis 6.17. And what do we hear the Lord saying there? The Lord says, Behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth. The Lord says he's intervening. He's not over somewhere else, not taking notice. He is intervening in judgment. Now, the worldwide flood is not to be seen as a chance calamity. Behind all so-called natural phenomena stands 
the purpose of a sovereign God who's providentially involved in the minutest details of his world. So in the midst of this, God makes a saving provision. In the midst of this discussion about judgment and destruction of sinners, God tells Noah that there is a way of deliverance for him. Look what he says in verse 14. This is the gospel. This is the picture of Christ, of salvation. After hearing that God is, his wrath has been stirred, his holiness has been offended, and here comes the gospel. Noah, make yourself an ark. This is the way of deliverance for him and his household. Now, a few key features of this ark. Remember, this ark is one of these shining, clear pictures of Jesus and his salvation in the Old Testament. So a few key features of the ark. First of all, look at verse 15. The ark is huge. It would have been 150 yards long. Think of a football field and a half. By good calculations from zoologists, you could fit 35,000 species of invertebrate animals comfortably in the ark, and that would only fill half of it. The ark would have been 15 yards high, 25 yards wide, It had a total deck area of almost 100,000 square feet. And because of its design, if you study the design, the engineers in this this room, especially the structural engineers, when when you study the design, it's square, flat, and long. It's impossible to capsize. It's like a barge. And look at verse 16. It's three storied. And all the old Jewish rabbinical interpreters insisted that the breakdown of those three floors went like this. That the humans lived on the top floor for that year. The middle deck was for the animals and the lower deck was for the refuse. And notice in verse 14, it's filled with rooms. So there are divisions in the ark, perhaps for different kinds of animals. And then in verse 16, we read that there's an architectural mechanism for fresh air and light to circulate. The Lord gives instructions. Look at verse 19 through 21. These instructions are preliminary instructions given to Noah before the construction of the ark, at the front of the 120 years that Noah's working on it. Later, after the ark had been built and when the flood was imminent, God gave Noah more specific instructions, providing that of certain species, seven specimens were to be taken into the ark. Look carefully at chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I've seen that you're righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every, here it comes, clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. This command to bring seven pairs of clean animals is not a contradiction to what is said earlier in Genesis 6, in which Noah had been directed to bring two of each kind. So this should be understood as meaning that at least a pair of every kind of animal is brought. And then God makes the distinction between clean and unclean animals to be kept on the ark. Now, interestingly, Noah is already familiar with the laws regarding clean and unclean animals 
that will much later be stated in the ceremonial law of Israel. So it's when it's stated to Moses hundreds of years later, it's no change from this previously understood paradigm. A clean animal, according to Leviticus 11, is revealed in Scripture as one suitable for eating and for sacrifice. But I want you to notice something profound even here. There are lessons for our culture in even the simplest things here. It must be stated here, already told to us in Genesis 2.24, in the institution of marriage, the normative nature of the male-female relationship. God does not command Noah to take two males and no females into the ark. Repeatedly, look how often the Lord tells Noah the, the gender practice. For example, Genesis 6.19, Of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Chapter 7, verse 2, You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female. Two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. We see it again in verse 9. Two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female. And then when Noah and his household enters, notice who goes in. The exact same pairs. Noah and his wife. Shem and his wife. Japheth and his wife. Ham and his wife. This is normative. And anything else is deviant from the norm. Now one of the foolish questions that's usually asked of this, usually by the same people who ask, where did Cain get his wife, or questions like that, is this. How could untamed, savage animals be induced to live harmoniously for several months inside a boat? The answer is simple. The very same Lord who will one day make the lion lie down with the lamb, when the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. That same Lord, with great ease, can move the creatures to enter in at Noah's command, and constrain them to the same peaceful nature they had in the Garden of Eden and will have when all things are restored. Another fascinating textual statement is the one in Genesis 6, verse 20. Look carefully there. When the Lord tells Noah that two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. Noah doesn't have to trap the animals or find the animals That's God's responsibility. He will move the animals in Noah's direction at the right time. This shouldn't be surprising once again. We already have a practice of that. Remember the Lord's practice in Genesis 2 where we're told he brought the animals to Adam to see what he would call them. Now he'll bring the animals to Noah. And then comes that spectacle that lasts for a week. We read about it in Genesis 7 verse 9. That spectacle that we are told of that all the animals went in the ark to Noah. This is easily the world's greatest parade that's ever occurred. I'm a parade junkie. My poor wife has had to stand outside in bitter cold for Christmas parades and blazing heat for Fourth of July parades. And she can never figure this out. She thinks that there's something profoundly genetically wrong with me because I love bad marching bands. 
I like convertibles with corrupt politicians waving to the voters. I love high school floats, and what I really love is Shriners and tiny cars. <laughs> but if you think those kind of parades are great, and by the way, if you're going to one, call me and I'll go with you. But this was a parade. Look at it in chapter 7, verse 9. This is a stupendous parade. Thousands of species going into the ark to Noah, male and female together. And this parade condemned all who watched it pass by. Because here are all of these people watching the animals saying, well, look at that. How about that? What do you think of that? This parade showed that soulless creatures had far more wisdom than image bearers. God gives the effectual call then to Noah and his household. And you say, could anyone have come onto the ark? Of course. Doors wide open. Anyone could come. Whoever wanted to could have walked right into the ark and been saved. But no one did, except the eight. So also today, anyone can come to Christ. The free offer of the gospel stands. But the only ones who will come are those who are effectually called and sovereignly drawn. But then we see in chapter 7, the wrath of God is on full display. You see in verses 17 through 24, the massive cataclysmic nature of the flood. Listen to these words in chapter 7, verse 17 and following. The flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And so this is a, a torrent flows out of Moses' pen now as he's describing this. Look at some of the descriptions in verse 17. The waters are increasing. They're rising high. The ark rides across the top, safe. Verse 18, the waters prevail and greatly increase. And then in verse 19, the waters prevail exceedingly and all the high hills under the whole heaven, under the whole heaven were covered. Verse 20, the waters prevailed and the mountains were covered. The specific designation in verse 20 speaks of the waters prevailed 15 cubits upward. Speaks of water way above the mountain tops, 20 to 25 feet above the tops of mountains. And so what we have in verse 21 through 23, look at it clearly. It's the rain of death. Because as we read this text, we are meant to be solemnly silenced by the universality of death. Other than Noah and his family, there are no survivors. 
This is the fulfillment of what God had promised back in Genesis 6 verse 7 when the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air. Now let me switch gears for a moment and show you something very different in this text. Look at Genesis 6.22 and notice in the preparation for this, Noah's scrupulous obedience. After the Lord gives him commands on what to prepare, we read, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. In fact, the most repeated and common truth we know about Noah's character is this. He obeyed God. We are told this over and over again. Look, for example, at chapter 7, verse 5. Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Verse 9, as God had commanded Noah. Verse 16, they went in as God had commanded him. And before you shrug off Noah's obedience as something small and inconsequential, remember this. First of all, Noah had to cut down a whole forest for lumber without chainsaw or trucks or cranes. Noah had to precisely cut and shape this boat without power tools. Noah had to build the equivalent of a shopping mall room by room inside this boat. Noah had to do this work for 120 years. <clears throat> and then he couldn't just focus on shipbuilding. He had to grow and harvest a year's worth of food for his family and for all of these thousands of animals and put the food room by room in the boat. So Noah began. He labored a year, then a decade, then a second decade, then a century, then a couple more decades. And he did all this while laboring as, Second Peter 2 calls him, a preacher of righteousness. All the while he didn't argue with God or question his wisdom or discuss the relevance. That's the right response of the godly man to the commands of God. What moved him to such obedience? His obedience was profound. It's astounding. Listen to what Hebrews 11 says about Noah and why he did this. We're told in Hebrews 11, by faith. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear and prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Two things motivated Noah to obey. Faith and fear. By faith he did this. He believed the promises of God and he feared God. And that's exactly what moves the believer today to obedience. He believes the promises of God and he fears the Lord. Now all of this is preparatory. <clears throat> the ark is meant to function as a type. Last week I quoted Walt Kaiser, the Old Testament scholar, who gives this definition of types. Kaiser says, by type, we mean that God has so ordained and superintended specific persons, events, institutions, and commissioned their recording in Scripture so as to anticipate a larger, a greater realization in future events connected with the coming of the Messiah. Types presuppose something. That God has a plan in history that he's unfolding and he's engineering history and he's embedding it all along with images that point forward. A type must be a, a true and an accurate picture of the person or thing it represents. For example, we will look at in a few weeks, Aaron the high priest is a rough figure of Christ 
the greater high priest. A type always prefigures something future. So it's a form of prophecy. Some legitimate and obvious types in Scripture would include the one we saw last week, Adam, as the head of a race. We saw that in Romans 5 where we're just flatly told that Adam was a type. We're told Adam was a type of him who was to come. In weeks to come, we'll look at the tabernacle, which is a type of the incarnation, the presence of God with his people. We're told in Hebrews 8 that the real tabernacle is the one in heaven. Or we'll look at the sacrificial system. The Passover lamb perfectly pictures the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus, which is why he's called the Lamb of God. Or we'll look at the bronze serpent or the offices of prophet, priest, and king. All of these are types that are pointing forward like signposts saying, look, the the Messiah is going to come, will be like this. And so we have all the aspects of Christ's person and work spelled out for us in types before he ever comes. Now remember, the language can be confusing. The type is the shadow, the picture. It's truth on a lower plane. But the anti-type is the reality, truth on the heavenly plane. So with all that, Let's talk about a dozen or so of the correspondences between the ark and Christ. How the ark is like Christ. First of all, the waves and billows of the worldwide flood are typical of the wrath to come. Without Christ, we are lost and the wrath of God abides upon us. And just as the ark was a refuge for eight men... So the ark, so the Lord Jesus Christ is a hiding place for us. We're told, for example, in Psalm 31, Psalm 32, when the psalmist cries out, Lord, you are my hiding place. You will preserve me from trouble. And just as the ark was a warning for sinners, so does Jesus warn sinners to flee to him. The ark had rooms for all the animals, we're told in Genesis 6.14. Jesus said, in his Father's house there are many rooms. According to 2 Peter 2, Noah preached escape through the ark, but men thought it to be foolish. Just as today, men think that the preaching of the cross of Christ is foolishness. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, God invited Noah, come into the ark. Jesus repeatedly makes the same offering. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. The call to come into the ark was a a limited time offer. So is Christ's call to come to him, a limited time offer. The, The door of the ark didn't stay open long. Soon God shut the door. Once the door has been shut, there will be no more opportunity for people to come and be rescued from the flood of God's wrath. That's why scripture is replete with urgings and imperatives such as the one in Isaiah 55 where we're told seek the Lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near the ark had only one door so Christ is called the door Jesus says in John 10 verse 9 I am the door the only door just like the ark if anyone enters by me he'll be saved Noah had no idea about shipbuilding And it had never rained before, we're specifically told in Scripture. And what we find out quickly is the ark was all God's idea. The Lord gave Noah the size of the ark and all the details before Noah's 120-year building campaign and evangelistic campaign. The Lord designed it, and he took the initiative in saving a remnant. Just so, 
Salvation through Christ is all God's idea and execution. We were eternally elected in Christ, atoned for by Christ, sovereignly drawn to Christ, given faith in Christ, kept by Christ. Just as the ark, the idea, the plan for it was all of God, salvation is all of the Lord. The ark was a place of absolute security. The waves pounded. Certainly the boat went up and down on the waters. It even went above the tips and the tops of Mount Everest. But the ark was a place of security. No one inside perished. Just so Christ keeps all who are in him in perfect safety. That's why he says, I give them, my sheep, eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me as greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Those who are in Christ are protected from the wrath of God. Those outside of Christ are perishing. Another analogy. Just as God showed patience for 120 years while salvation by an ark was being preached, so now God is showing patience. 1,990 years so far as salvation by Christ is being preached. Another analogy. Just as the flood was unexpected, so is the second coming of Christ unexpected. Although the people of Noah's day had been warned, they didn't know the exact timing. Listen to these words again from Matthew 24. As the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So far we've spoken of about a dozen points of correspondence between the ark and Christ, but there's one vital point of contrast between the ark and Christ. Jesus succeeds where Noah failed. Noah preached for 120 years and saw seven converts all in his own family. Christ has been preached for 2,000 years and has seen billions come into the ark. How do we apply this word? Let me make a few brief applications. First of all, let me continue in that vein. Noah was an utter failure as an evangelist. I'm quite sure, based on his inclusion in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, that Noah was actually an amazing pulpiteer. But here is his church growth record outside the door of his house. Zero converts. But the New Testament clearly labels Noah as a preacher of righteousness who warned the world around him. How do we make sense of this? We must be told this again and again. Duties are ours. Results are God's. Noah was faithful. We're told so in 2 Peter. He was a faithful preacher, banged his head against the wall or against the side of the ark for 120 years and saw no converts outside of his household. My friend, I hope that you can learn to not judge a ministry by the church growth, by the number of converts. Do we pray and ask for that? Certainly. But duties are ours, results are God's. A second application. 
Unbelieving men cannot escape the wrath of God. In the days after the rains began, sinners no doubt tried to escape the judgment of the rising floodwaters. Perhaps they climbed tall trees or they ran up to the top of hilltops and survived a few hours or maybe even a day longer than others. But the rushing and roaring waters eventually reached them. The same will be even more true at the last judgment. You know what the problem was of all who perished in that first great judgment? They'd not made any provision for their safety. They'd heard. They'd heard about a refuge. Perhaps they'd seen the refuge. Maybe they walked by it. They'd seen the ark, but they mocked the idea. And now it was too late. It will be even more serious in the final judgment for you. You've been told of the one ark of refuge from the wrath of Almighty God, and that is to be found in Christ. The writer of Hebrews says to you in Hebrews 2, How will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? My friends, you're called to the same choices as Noah. You're called to scrupulously obey God's commands. You're called to do as he did and walk by faith. You're called to see to the spiritual good of your own household. You're called to call the world around you away from coming judgment. And you are called to run into the ark who is Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you that in your wisdom, you've embedded the whole Bible with pictures and types and shadows of the saving work of Jesus. By these, deepen our love to him our gratitude to him and our trust in him. We pray in the name of Christ, our only ark and savior. Amen.